Good evening. We're continuing our series in the book of Judges. As we'll talk about in a moment, Judges is not exactly, at least at face value, the most exciting or kind book in the Bible. But we have found a wealth of truth and grace, like John talked about a moment ago, in it. So I invite you to come on this journey as we look at the next judge in Israel's history. But before we look at him, I want to talk about love. Because I believe that most people today have a misunderstanding of the concept of love. As John pointed out in the big idea, sometimes we have this internal desire to give something to someone when they give us something. We call it like paying them back. We want to make sure that somebody knows that what they gave us is appreciated. And sometimes, even for Ruby, um, like John talked about, and the gift that her mom had given her, sometimes just thank you doesn't seem like enough, so we want to give something to people. And it's in this framework that most of our relationships work as well. Take marriage, for example. Before marriage, or even a committed relationship between two people, most couples give all of themselves to one another in sacrificial love. They sacrifice for one one another out of the love that they're feeling, out of the love that they experience, and out of the love that is being reciprocated to them. But, as we all have seen or witnessed firsthand, many marriages, uh, in marriage, many times, something changes. And this self-sacrificing love that existed before becomes taxing, burdensome. And a lot of times, each party begins to notice ways that the other person is not sacrificing quite as much as they are. You ever been there like I have? This way of loving is similar to what many people find in religion. They begin thinking that they love the idea of God and his love for them, but when life in the here and now has real problems, it seems as though this loving God, who they started a relationship with that was going great, is absent. Or he's not sacrificing enough to show them that he loves them. To these people, a relationship with God is about proving their love to him in order to earn favor or blessing. This, though, is not the message of the gospel. It's not the message of God's love or grace, as John talked about a moment ago. Just like my marriage is not about what I have to do to prove my love for my wife, Lindsay, the gospel is not about what humanity has to do or has done to show its love to God. In marriage, when Lindsay and I made our vows before those who had gathered that day, and God. We laid down ourselves. We set aside ourselves to love and serve one another, regardless of circumstances. Remember that part of the vows? In sickness and in health, for richer, for poorer, till death do us part. Regardless of circumstances here, we said in a covenant vow we would sacrifice for one another. In the gospel... God has given himself fully through Jesus to show his love for humanity. 
and wants nothing from humanity except for them to give themselves fully to him. This is indeed the same thing that God was desiring from Israel all these years as they were continually falling back and forth into idolatry. The sin of trying to manipulate these false gods by sacrificing to them in order to try to get a response. And this begins to get at the core of why we do this in marriage and religion. And that is because, I believe, when we get what we want by giving things to people, then we remain in control. Tonight's message is about what we give to prove our love to God. And we will see that what God desires is that we give of ourselves. So, now into Judges. With that as our thinking, we remember that the trend has maintained fairly steady over the course of this book, right? To refresh you, the people of Israel, God's chosen people whom he has led out of slavery and bondage and throughout the years been a deliverer and a savior to them, they forget God. They forsake him. And they follow after false gods of the surrounding nations. The nations then oppress them and God sends a savior for Israel. And then you rinse and you repeat That's been the cycle so far. And this cycle illustrates to us a crucial point that we must not miss. And it's point one of the sermon. You have a section on the back of your worship folder if you'd like to take notes. The first point is that idolatry leads to slavery. You see, Israel was enslaved by the nations whose gods they had forsaken the Lord to worship. The more the people of Israel pursued the idols of other nations, the more oppressed they became. You see, their idolatry led to their slavery. And then, their slavery led to more idolatry. The same is true today. When we pursue our own sinful desires, think with me about ourselves for a moment, instead of about Israel's sin, when we pursue our own sinful desires as idols of worship, whether it's replacing God with money, with our relationships, with the pursuit of power or authority or success or knowledge, or our appearance, or any other temptation. When we pursue those things, we become enslaved. You see, because freedom has a price. We become slaves to the things that provide us temporary freedom. Much like a drug addict becomes a slave to the euphoria she might experience when she takes a hit. Okay? So she will do anything in order to get it again. Just to taste that little bit of freedom. You know what I mean? You've seen this in people. She will steal, cheat, lie, manipulate, even kill. She is a slave to the vice that brings a moment or a time of freedom or release. Each time, it promises to last. But 
as we all know, whether from drug addiction or addiction to any sin or temporary euphoric state, as we all know, it's always a temporary fix. It never lasts. This truth for this drug addict is really easy for her friends and family to see, right? The ones who are not addicted. They can see that it's not going to last. Why do you keep going back over and over and over again? It never lasted before. It's never going to last again. It's destroying your life. It's easy for those outside of this addiction to see. But she's blind to it because it is enslaving her. It has power over her, much like a master has power over a slave. And that is because anything besides God that promises lasting freedom can only lead to enslavement. Anything besides God that promises freedom will only lead to enslavement. Israel learned this lesson the hard way. And God, in these verses, following what Sierra just read, turns his back on his people. When they cried for help, he told them in chapter 10, verse 14, read with me, he says, Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. God did not abandon his people, as we find out in just a moment. But for a second, let us see this clearly and understand this, that he did let them have their way. He is, in essence, saying something like this. I have saved you so many times, child. I have taught you so often that I am the only God you can serve who loves you fully and mercifully. You know I want to take you back but I'm looking into your homes and I can see the idols. They're right there under the table. They're just behind the chair. I know that you haven't put them away. You haven't turned from them. You just want to avoid destruction. And you're sick of being slaves. The only way you're going to learn is if I leave you out in the cold. So go. Go. Call to those gods who have never saved you and maybe this time you'll get freedom. It seems like it's over. Like God has abandoned his people. He's left. He's done. And all hope is lost. But then, just a couple of verses later, we hear from Israel again. In verse 16, the word says, So they put away the foreign gods from among them. And then they served the Lord. And he became, listen to this, impatient over the misery of Israel. It is in this moment right here that we realize that God had not left his people. It seems like he left them, but he never left. He was just attempting to teach them a lesson. He was just wanting them to know that he could not be won over with tears and an apology. But it took real repentance. It was going to take heart change. It was going to take the putting away of sin in order to be saved. You see, Israel had just done what we in our culture call lip service to God. They had talked the talk. 
but they never walked the walk. They said, oh Lord, we're sorry. Please save us. And God, in his omniscient power, knowing everything that they had, could see right behind them. The gods are still there. You're just crying out like a two-year-old who knows exactly how to get what he wants. Get enough of those real crocodile tears and mom will do just what I want. And as soon as I get that cookie, wipe the tears away and it's all gone. God could see right through their confession and he saw that they had not truly repented. They never turned from the gods. They never put them away. And it is here in God's Uh, the way that the writer says it, impatience over their misery. It is here that we learn point number two, a very important understanding we must come to is that God's mercy knows no bounds. So despite having promised to never hear them again, the Lord becomes impatient with their oppression. He responds when they have a sincere heart change. And it is vital for followers of Jesus to understand that just as God was not moved to compassion for Israel based solely on their apology, he is not moved to compassion for forgiveness of sins based on our confession. Does that make sense? Israel apologized, and that did not move God to compassion for them. Sometimes we come to God and confess our sins. Lord, I know I have sinned. We confess the lusts of our heart. We confess the pride. We we confess the false motives by which we have sought out a promotion at work. We confess those things. And that does not lead God, our Father, the all-knowing creator of the universe, to compassion to forgive us any more than Israel's apology and fake tears led him to deliver them. God desires our spirits to be broken over the sins we have committed. <clears throat> we know <clears throat> excuse me. We know this happens when, like Israel, we don't just weep and plead for mercy, but we pick up our idols and we cast them away. We leave them behind. We pick up our behavior and we move it away from the sin that so easily entangles us. Like Cain, in the very beginning, if you remember the story of Cain, God comes to him and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door. He gives us the imagery of a tiger ready to pounce. He warns Cain, put off this sin. But Cain doesn't do that. And the sin pounces on him and overtakes him. It enslaves him. And he commits murder against his brother Abel. Confession, our confession, gives birth to repentance when the idols that we are sorry for replacing God with are shattered, when they're burned with fire, when God can't look over our shoulders and see them hidden underneath our tables and behind our chairs. God displayed his love, his compassion to people by raising up a 
a judge. As we have seen in this cycle, he raises up a judge. And if you remember from last week, he raises up a judge very similar, at least from the outside, to Abimelech. Last week we learned of a man named Abimelech who was born outside of his father's inheritance. He was the son of a concubine, which means he had no rights. And this man murdered all 70 of his brothers in order to grasp at any and all authority he could get on his hands. He took the bull by the horn and blazed his own trail to success and glory. Abimelech was the forgotten son who was too impatient to wait for God to have mercy. Instead, he killed everyone in his path. He killed everyone in between him and this glory and fame that he so desperately desired to fulfill him. And he was eventually killed by the ones he was trying to oppress. So God's new judge, Jephthah, like Abimelech, was an illegitimate child. He was born of a prostitute, but he was raised in his father's house like a son. Until one day, his younger half-brothers drove him out of the region. He fled to the land of Tob and got involved in organized crime. Picture Queens mobsters in the 1920s. So he gets pushed out. He goes to Tob. He becomes a crime boss. He's involved in organized crime. And as the years passed, the people of Israel were experiencing this oppression at the hands of the Ammonites who eventually made war with them. So they had served the God of the Ammonites. And then what happens? Idolatry leads to slavery. And so the Ammonites had enslaved them. And as the years passed, eventually the Ammonites made war with Israel. And it's at this point that the leaders of Israel start looking around for someone to lead them in a war. And who better to have on your side in the 1920s in Queens than a mob boss, right? So they think, let's go to Jephthah. So they come to Jephthah, most likely because of his reputation as a great warrior and a leader of men. And he, they ask him to lead him into battle, to lead them as their captain. And he, unlike Abimelech, who sought revenge against all who had wronged him, even to the point of murder, did not show vengeance. He accepted their request on one condition. He said, if you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites and the Lord gives them over to me, then I will be your head. As you might imagine, Jephthah leads Israel to a great victory. But just before he goes into battle, he does something strange. Read with me in Judges chapter 11, verse 29 and following. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead, this is the land of his father, and Manasseh, and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's. And I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, This is not as strange of a thing as you might think. Because this is normal. If a king or a leader comes back into town after winning a great victory, oftentimes they will have a parade or a celebration. 
Just like if the Knicks would ever win the NBA championship in New York, there would be millions celebrating on the street. Maybe if the Mets win the World Series, we'll see this. But when somebody comes back from out of town with a great victory, you have a celebration, a parade. And at the parade, the ones who are receiving the glory are the ones who have returned victorious, right? We praise them. Great job. Thanks for bringing this title to our city, this victory. And Jephthah knows that's going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord had come upon him. He's confident that he's going to be victorious. And so it's, it's a request at humility. He is saying to God, when you give me victory, I will not receive the praise at this victory parade. But whatever first walks into my home to praise me, I'm going to give that to you as a sacrifice. You see, Israel was commanded to sacrifice animals. Jephthah, in an attempt to prove that he was just as ardent a follower of the true God as the idolaters were of false gods, said, I am willing to sacrifice a human. He didn't understand that the only sacrifice that could satisfy a perfect God is the perfect lamb. Instead of offering themselves as God desired, as God desired, um, as we read in uh, Psalm chapter 51, David understood that God did not desire these animals as a sacrifice. Listen to verse 15 through 17 of Psalm 51. The psalmist David writes this beautiful poem and it says, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it to you. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, Jephthah was sincere in his desire to prove his love for God and to not accept the praise that was due to God. He knew that when he came victorious, there would be much pomp and circumstance. He also knew about the son of Gideon, who, as we heard last week, upon returning from victory, about the sin of Gideon, who upon returning from victory was begged to be the king. Remember that? He came in victorious, and they said, Gideon, please, be our king. He knew that. So he was trying to avoid that sin. But he did not anticipate how great the loss would be when he misunderstood God's desire for sacrifice. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. He will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Jephthah does fulfill his vow. And unfortunately, in one of the saddest accounts in the book of Judges, the first person to walk through his door was his only daughter. He fulfills his vow, and in this act, tonight, we turn our eyes from Jephthah, the judge who had great victory for Israel, to the daughter. She sees the road in front of her as the one that she must tread for the people. He tells her, he laments and cries and says, I promised God I would sacrifice you. 
We never learn of her name. Yet she honors her father even to the point of death because that's what he asks her to do. She is innocent, a virgin, a picture of the coming Messiah. This girl, nameless, would go to the altar without a fight and point the praise of the people to the Lord and foreshadow the Christ who would come years later. Jesus, then, the name above all names, innocent of any sin, would go to the altar voluntarily as well, to the cross without a fight, and for the eternal salvation and life of the people of the world, he would point to the Lord who saves. In the New Testament letter to the church in Corinth, the Apostle Paul reminds us of this. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It's here that we understand the real mistake that was made by Jephthah. He thought that he could make a sacrifice that would satisfy God, when in reality, point number three, Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice. When Jesus gave himself on the cross, he showed humanity that it was him and only him that had the power to remove the justified wrath of God toward humanity because of sin. Any attempt that we might make would be as mistaken as it was for Jephthah to offer whoever walks through the door. The beauty of the sacrifice of Jesus is that it was not only sufficient for him, But as we read in John chapter 10, so Jesus again said to them, the disciples, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Church, because Jesus gave himself to the Lord, you can give yourself also. Because God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus, he will accept your sacrifice of self. Israel forgot God by trying to offer some sacrifice to him as if he were an idol or a false god. In the same way, you and I often attempt to appease God by making promises or giving our money or our time, even our devotion, in order to manipulate him, all the while holding our idols under our tables or behind our chairs 
never fully leaving them behind. Today, know that God wants you, not your things. Today, give yourself to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it brings sadness to our hearts when we hear of the mistakes that were made in your name in the scriptures. To think that this innocent young woman was sacrificed on an altar to you and how great the sorrow you must have felt that day. Those things cause us sometimes to question They hurt deep inside. But Father, today I pray that you would lift our heads. That you would show us that you did require death. But that instead of forcing that death upon someone else as Jephthah did, you came yourself. You lived as we did so that you could relate with us. You are fully God and fully man so that you could bridge that gap that we have caused with our sin. Thank you that in order to receive that gift of grace, you have required nothing of us except all of us. I pray that you would give us confidence as we come before your throne tonight. Giving of ourselves, not of our things. And lift our heads as we return in praise and worship of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.